Let's bow together. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for an opportunity to get into it today. (coughs) Father, we pray for open ears and open hearts. We pray for a clear message. We thank you for uh, all that you do for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So last night I came home from our annual family reunion. Uh, my, my parents hosted for my dad's side of the family. There were six siblings, even more grandkids, and even now we're getting to the great-grandkids portion of the family reunion where all the grandkids who used to hang out are now chasing them all over the place. And it's a lot of fun, but it all started with two people, Betty and Paul Graves at 19 East 19th Street in Paris, Kentucky. They raised six kids in a one-bedroom house, one-bedroom, one-bathroom house. Uh, Somehow they never killed each other, and they still actually talk to each other, and they do actually show up to the family reunion every year. But when you go in, we went into uh, Granny and Peppa's house. There in the front room, uh, there was Peppa's chair. And I was the only one who ever grew taller than he was. He was six foot four and just a massive man and had a massive heart, but he, he, that was his chair. And so we would go and he would be watching one of three things. He would be watching a Western, a golf tournament, or a Kentucky athletic event. One of those three things were on the television at all times. I remember sitting next to him on the couch and talking to him and hearing stories about, uh, mainly about Paris basketball that he was so uh, in love with and Towards the end of his life, some of his tales from World War II, we, we would sit and we would talk, but that was his chair. In 2005, my senior year of high school, he passed away, and my grandmother lived in that house for about seven more years. And so every time we would go over, especially there at the beginning, we would go in and we would just take our normal seats, and there would be this gigantic chair just sitting there. Because none of us wanted to sit there. That was Papa's chair, and we knew he wasn't coming back, and he wasn't going to go sit there, but it was just weird. It was weird. It took about two years for any of us to sit there, and then it was a little bit squirmy when we did that. I think that I asked for stories uh, on Facebook this week of people who have their chair, and I heard a a bunch of great stories about, well, whenever we come home, one of my former college students said, when we come home, even after all these years, I sit in one place, my sister sits in another place, and my parents sit at this place when we eat. We just have our seats. Chances are you are sitting in your seat today. It is in the same general vicinity that you sat in it the very first Sunday that this building opened. This is your seat. We're going to talk about a seat today. And it's a seat that governs our lives. Now, before I get into it, I want you to know, God's on his throne and there's nothing you or I can do about it. God is on his throne. There's nothing that this world can do about it. He is sovereign. He is righteous. He is on his throne. But the Bible talks about how even though God is on his throne because we have free will, God is, is pleading that he's also on the throne of our lives. But so often we choose something else. God opens up the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 with this. You should have no other gods before me. First, first and foremost, I'm first. I need to be the focal point in your life. When I talk to people who, who don't really understand this whole idea of sin, they say, well, what, what is sin? I say, well, my definition of sin is that we tell God no thank you. That's, that's my definition of sin, is we know what God can provide, and we know what God can give us, and we just tell God, no thanks, I'm going to choose something else. 
That's what we do. When we put something or someone on that throne, and because they're on the throne, they're the one who we believe can provide for us whatever it is that we desire or that we want. And James is going to get into this section of Scripture here in the last part of James 4 and the first part of James 5 where he kind of does what the author of Proverbs does. If you read Proverbs straight through, it looks like that he's just jumping around from place to place. And this is a little bit of what James is doing. But the theme that ties all of these together are in all of these situations, James is asking basically the question, who's in charge? Who's in charge? Who's making the decisions? Because the honest truth is that the person or the thing that is most likely on your throne is yourself. More often than not, we decide to live for ourselves, do the things that we want to do. And so here James is going to give us three examples of ways that we do that. James 4 verse 11 says, Brothers and sisters, do not slander one another. Anyone who speaks against a brother or a sister or judges them speaks against the law and judges it. When you judge the law, you are not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. There is only one lawgiver and judge, the one who is able to save and destroy, but you, who are you to judge your neighbor? James says there's only one lawgiver, there's only one judge, and that is God. He is the only one that is qualified to pass any sort of judgment because God knows what happened, and beyond that, God knows why it happened. God sees inside of us. He sees the action. He sees the situation, and He knows the law because He wrote it, and He knows what is right and true. As much as we would like to put hope in our judicial system, we know that judges can be bribed and they can lean one way or another. God is impartial. He judges perfectly. Romans 2, two says, now we know that God's judgment against those who do does such things is based on truth. Not on a whim, not on his feelings, not on anything else. It's based on truth. And yet, sometimes we don't like it the way that God runs things, particularly when it comes to judging Look what he says here in verse 11. He says, we judge the law. We're not keeping it, but sitting in judgment on it. We look at it and we say, this isn't adequate. Basically, we're torn between two things. We see God's law and we see God's mercy. And maybe some of us, we love God's mercy, but we don't really like God's law. And so what we do is we go through the Bible and we try to nitpick and we try to figure out how to make it say what we want it to say in order to tell someone that the way that they're living their life is okay. We like to twist it. We like to turn it. We like to omit the very next sentence because it tells us that we're wrong. But we just clip and paste and say, this is what God says. This is what is true. This is, this is what it is. We don't like maybe some of the harsher things that we see that God maybe stands for. And so we decide to take things into our own hands. And we're going to say, well, this goes because Jesus never talked about it. Or the Old Testament, that, that's Old Testament. New Testament doesn't say anything about it. So you're fine. But the pendulum swings the other way. There's a lot of us who we love God's law, but we're not crazy about His mercy. And so we go and we tell people how awful they are. When they mess up, when they slip up, we are the first one to go and to cite Deuteronomy, whatever, whatever. And we say, listen, this, you are wrong. You are a terrible person. I can't believe you would do that. Be more like me. Like that's essentially what we say. I don't like 
that God would give you mercy. So I'm going to make you feel terrible. That's what we do. And what we do is when we assume the throne of God, we just do it so that we can judge others how we want to. We don't like how God's doing it, and so we're going to set our own parameters, our own law, our own working definition of grace and justice and things like that, and we're going to take it into our own hands. The problem, well, there's a lot of them. The first one is that we destroy someone's view of God because we're speaking on his behalf and we're misrepresenting him. There's a lot of people who feel really good about their life because they've been told by Christians that they're not doing anything wrong when they are. And there's a lot of people who feel really terrible about who they are because Christians told them that they're less of a person because of the things that they've done. It's because we've assumed the throne of God in our lives and we've said, you know what, whatever I say, that's what goes. The problem is that we are called to call out sin. We are. We are called to call out sin. But it gives us no right to judge someone. There's a difference. Calling out sin means I absolutely hate what sin does to you. I hate that it's leading you down this path. I hate that it's wrecking your family. I hate that it's wrecking you. I hate that you're addicted to this. I hate that it's destroyed your workplace. I hate sin and I hate what it does to you. That's completely different than going to someone and saying you're going to hell. It's different. Because only God has the authority to send someone to hell and to bring someone into heaven. We don't have that authority. So what, we, what do we need to do? How do we make sure that God's on the throne in ourselves? Well, we stand for truth. We stand for grace. We say what is right. We say what is wrong. But we do it to be a light, to bring others out of darkness, and we leave the judging to God. That's how we keep God first in this aspect. We allow God to be the judge, and we just tell people that we hate what sin does to them. James continues here in James 4. He says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, and carry on our business and make money. Why, you don't even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, If it's the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogant schemes. All such boasting is evil. If anyone then knows the good they ought to do and doesn't do it, it is a sin for them. How many of you are drivers? And by drivers, I mean if you're going on the trip, there is no option B, you are the driver. How many of you are? If you're sitting next to someone you go on trips with, you need to have a discussion. But I'm a driver, right? If we have to make a 24-hour trip, I will drive 23 hours and 59 minutes to, and let somebody drive the one just so I can tell my parents, no, I didn't drive all that way. Like, that's, that's the way I, I I'm a, maybe that's the reason I hate planes is because if they have an issue, I can't fix it. Like, I just can't, I can't stand not driving. And the same thing is true for our lives. We just can't stand not being in control. We can't stand not having a a finger on everything. And yet, around our house, we have Joshua plastered, which says, I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, the prosper. We do. All over our house, we talk about how great God is at doing his plan, and we, we don't let him have a say. Because we like to drive. Because we like to be in control. 
God knows more than, than we do. I don't know if you know that this morning, but God, God, he knows everything, therefore that is more than you, okay? It's definitely more than you teenagers. I want you to know that. You don't know everything. College students, you don't know everything. Just ask your mom. God knows everything. And because he created us and he designed us, he has a purpose for us, which means he knows what we need to do, and he knows where we need to go. And yet so often, we just take the driver's seat. We say, God, you know, it was great. I loved when you drove us through that time when life was going really good, but I don't really like where we're heading right now, so you mind letting me drive for a little while? You're making me a bit uncomfortable. I I don't like where we're going. And so we take God's throne so that we can go wherever we want to. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. This doesn't mean that we just fly by the seat of our pants. There is responsibility in living, but the question is, is how much space are you allowing God to tell you what he wants you to do? A professor of mine told me a story about a different college. A professor went into his advanced preaching class. These are people getting ready to to graduate with their master's degree in preaching. And he says, you have a final exam, and your final exam is that you're going to preach about the Good Samaritan. And so they went to their dorm rooms. They had whatever the allotted time was. They went and they studied, and they came up with a sermon. And they were spread out throughout the day. The day that they came to do their sermon, there was a homeless man that appeared on campus. And he sat on a bench that was between the dorm room and the classroom. And he, was, he looked awful. He, he looked like he hadn't bathed in a very long time. He had signs telling people that he needed money, he needed help, he needed food. And seven out of the ten people went to class. They walked right past him, went into the room, got there and opened up their Bible only to hear the professor say, sorry, you failed. And they were shocked. They put all this time and this energy into studying God's Word. They had a killer sermon on the Good Samaritan. They were ready to go and change the world. And and the professor said, you failed. And the reason you failed is because my buddy that I hire once a year to sit out between the dorm room and the classroom says that you just walked on by. And my final lesson for you as a master student in preaching is that you better be able to live your message, not just speak it. They weren't doing anything wrong. They were studying to be preachers. They were quality people. But, But they missed the point. They missed the point. There was someone there who needed help. And they walked right on by. See, this is what we do. We do a lot of planning and things that are probably pretty good. But when we don't allow God to say, you know, I have something for you today, we miss the point. And we do this one of two ways. The first is that we put off doing good things until they're convenient for us. Right? We know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. Well, James just said that's a sin. 
There's a good chance that in your workplace you have felt God calling you to do something and talk to a coworker for a very long time. But you keep telling God, tomorrow sounds like a really good day to do this, and 75 years later you still haven't done it. We keep putting off things until they're convenient for us to do. But when we do that, there's a time restriction, and time will run out, and we will miss that opportunity all because we were waiting for tomorrow to be a better day. When we just plan out our day and we say we're going to go and we're going to do this and we're not going to have any leeway, we completely eliminate the chance for God to say, oh, by the way, why don't you go love on that person that's in your classroom? Why don't you go take care of someone else? The second thing that we do is we just make our future plans without God's input. That's what we do. We make a five-year plan for our family. We're going to make sure that we do this, this, and this. And we can't wait to see what we are going to do. And we never for a moment sit down, open up a Bible, close our eyes and pray and say, God, what's your plan for this family? What's your plan for me? We do things our own way. And so how do we make sure that we're not sitting on this throne? It's simple as this. Don't make plans without God's input. Don't go around believing that you've got it all figured out, even if you're doing really nice things. Know that you need to be listening for what God wants to do in your life. And be willing to change your plans when God says we need to change course. There's a third part here, the beginning of James 5. He says, Now listen, you rich people, weep and well because of the misery that's coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, the wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out to you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in... In the day of slaughter, you have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. I don't know about you, but I would hate to be the one God's talking to here. Wouldn't you? I mean, I'm not rich, so this isn't me, right? I, I don't have a plethora of money, all right? I don't. I, I just have a, a little bit. So this, this definitely isn't me. And I, I would say as you read through this together this morning, you would say, wow, I'm glad that's not me. That seems really harsh. I would hate for God to be speaking to me here. And, and what we don't realize is, if we're honest, if we look at the grand scheme of things, you probably have a little bit more money than most of the world. You probably have a little bit more resources. And let's be honest, if we've been given anything by God, we've been given in excess. Which means that in some way, shape, or form, we're probably a little bit rich. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. Everything. Everything is God's. And yet what we do is we take God's throne. Because if everything is God's, then who do we have to give the credit when things go well? God. When we get that raise, who gets the credit? God. When we get whatever, if we have the ability to sing, if we have the ability to fix someone's home and someone comes up to you and says, wow, you did such a great job. If the, world, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, we have to say, well, praise God. And you know what we get tired of doing? We get tired of praising God because we really want to praise ourselves. 
We're tired of lifting hands to God. We want to instead pat our own back. Because we want the praise. We take God's throne to keep his fame for ourselves. The stuff, the adoration, the praise, the acknowledgement that God should get. We look at the world that we live in. We look at what we have and we say, you know what? I'd like some people to tell me how nice my car is. I really love on Christmas to walk out of that, that, that business that I work in with that big old check for my Christmas bonus. And I'd love to accidentally drop it in front of the one who doesn't get it and say, oh, I'm sorry, let me pick that up. It tells me how well I'm doing and walk out. We, we like doing that. We like people patting us on the back. But the truth is that everything's God's. Everything that you have is God's. And so if we've been given something from God, we are rich. We're rich. And the realization we have to make is if we don't bless others with what we've been given, then we're making a huge mistake. We may not have workers out in the field that we haven't paid. Maybe you do. You need to get on that. But I I don't have workers in the field that need to be paid. I don't have servants in my household. I am the servant in my household. I, I, we, I don't have this. But I guarantee there's someone in Patterson's class who here in about a week when it gets really cold is going to show up in pants that are too small and a jacket that's too small because the only long sleeves they have is what they wore last year and they can't afford something else. And I know that Patterson has way too many clothes because he has grandparents who buy him that. And it would be really selfish if we kept it. I think that you're probably in that same situation. You may not have $1,000 to give to something, but you've got $25 to give to that family that you know is struggling to get by. You don't need 75 shoes. Someone else needs two. But when it's all about us and when we're on the throne, we're just going to do things for our own pleasure. But when we realize that what we have is God's, we have a responsibility to give. The truth is that other people have suffered because we've kept things for ourselves because they're ours. They have. We may think that we're scot-free because we've never seen it, but other people have suffered. As we talked about last week, the church has to do what it's designed to do. God calls the church to do things, and we put our hope in so many other things to do it. People have suffered because the church hasn't been gracious. People have suffered because the church hasn't given. We have to make sure that we are being a people who don't keep things for ourselves. And so how do we keep ourselves off that throne is that we acknowledge that God has everything and all we have has been entrusted to us for God's use. Everything that you have. Yes, that means everything that's in your back pocket right now. That's you. And I know that it's really easy to go and go to the restaurant or whatever and just swipe this bad boy because it's your money after all, but no, that's still God's. Even if it's digital, it's still God's. Everything we have is His. And so we have to make sure that we're focused on using it in ways that glorify Him and that bless other people. Here's the thing this morning. Timothy Keller in his book on prayer has a quote in there that's, that stuck out to me. 
He said, if we put anything on the throne of God other than God, we will crush it under the weight of our expectations and it will ultimately let us down. Anything. Why? Because only God can fulfill everything that we need. Something might put a band-aid on it, but eventually it's not going to suffice. If anything else is on the throne of our lives other than God, we will crush it under the expectations that we have. We will crush it under the needs that we have. And yet, this is what we do. We elevate a girl, a guy, a work, ourselves, popularity, to that throne. And we say, God, no thanks. No thanks, I'm picking something else. Here's something we have to take home today. God is far more qualified to sit on the throne of our lives than we are. So let's make sure to let him have the seat. He is far more qualified than we are. So let him drive. Let him take you where you need to go. This is what's called repentance. Repentance is looking and saying that I've messed this up. I can't do this on my own. God, come in. Maybe you sat down in someone's seat one time. You didn't know it was their seat and you walked in. But when they walked in, you quickly realized that that was their seat. What did you do? You got up. Why? It's their seat. Same thing is true with our lives. It's God's seat. Get up. Get up. Because you'll crush yourself and other people will suffer if he's not in charge. And so this morning, as we do every week, we have this invitation. And it's this invitation this morning is this. Get up. It's to get up and let God have what's his. And that's the throne of your life. That's the control of your life. He doesn't want to, to mess your life up. He wants to give you life and in, in, in it, give you life to the fullest. But we cannot experience that if we keep it all to ourselves. And here's what happens. If God is on the throne of our lives, other people will be blessed it. And so I'm going to be standing up here. If you've never made that decision to know Jesus, I'd love to talk to you about that. Or maybe this morning you just need prayer or maybe just a time of repentance to say, I've, I've driven this into the ground and I need somebody else. Jesus is more than willing to do that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for giving us a breath. That's a gift. We may not have as much money as someone. We may not have the resources we have, but we're all still breathing, which means you have a plan for us and a plan to bless others with our lives. And so, Father, help us to get up. I know for some of us it's hard to give up control, but we've seen this morning what happens and the damage that happens when we take control. It may work for a little bit, but it's never going to work in the long term. And so, Father, I pray if there's anyone here who's trying to do things on their own, that they would come to you today and they would say, I'm done. Father, we want you to be the one who takes control of our lives, that guides us where we need to go. Help us not to judge other people based on our own standards, but yours. Let you be the judge. Let us just go and try to save people. Father, help us not to make plans without you being part of it. And Father, in what we have, 
Let's make sure that we remember, help us to remember that it's yours to start with and you've just entrusted it to us. So Father, I pray that you would move in our hearts this morning. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you have a decision to make, we invite you to come forward. Let's all stand and let's sing.